You're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yeo. We are supported, as always, by our listeners at patreon.com slash booksandboba. So head on over there if you'd like to support our coverage of books by Asian and Asian American authors, as well as gain access to our members-only Discord server and monthly bonus podcast episodes. So for this episode of Books and Boba, we're bringing you an author chat with Kelly Lloyd Gilbert about her latest novel, Everyone Wants to Know, a coming-of-age story about Honor Lowe, the youngest member of the Lowe family who has been forced to grow up under the public eye as part of a reality TV show uh, based around her family. And the story revolves around her and her family coming to terms around the consequences of living um, that kind of life. Uh, Yeah, so we talked to Kelly about uh, her journey as a writer, about... uh, her thoughts on influencing and mommy bloggers and uh, how teens navigate uh, an online <laughs> world where they need to find a sense of self and uh, toxic relationships and families. Yeah, this book definitely covers a lot of ground. And we had a great time chatting with Kelly about a lot of these um, very important topics about um, our modern world. So um, please enjoy our conversation with Kelly Lloyd Gilbert. Here with Kelly Lloyd Gilbert, the author of Conviction, Picture Us in the Light, and When We Were Infinite. She is a Stonewall Honor Book recipient and the winner of the California Book Award. And we're here today to talk about her latest book, Everyone Wants to Know. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. So you majored in English literature and writing at UCSD, which is uh, Marvin's uh, college. And I'm guessing that you wanted to be an author since you were, you know, since you were young, because not a lot of people go to English literature without, you know, having dreams of becoming a writer. (laughs) I did. I always wanted to be an author, although I will say that in the program, I met a lot of people who were in it to become lawyers. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) But that was not me. (laughs) I, from the time I was able to read, I always loved books so much. And I just thought that if I could like make books someday, that would be just like the dream. That would be everything I wanted. Yeah. I only took maybe one literature course at UCSD and that was Asian American literature. Um, just cause I was interested in that. But, um, how was the program? Because like, from what I remember going to UCSD, our arts program tends to be like a little more experimental, a little bit more like out there. Like how was the literature program there I thought, um, I feel like it was definitely more um, geared almost at like literature to understand like sociology or history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very much looking at books through the lens of like, what can we learn about like the culture um, and not so much like what can we learn as writers, um, which was kind of interesting because I felt like I got to get like this sense of like how books would be read by people who weren't writers, I guess, or just like books is like a tool for like talking about like the world around you or like the era that you live in. Um, and the writing program felt very separate. Um, I had some classes and teachers who were kind of a lot more like experimental, like you said, and that was kind of like mind bending and interesting to me. Like I'd never encountered that kind of thing before. Um, and I had a really good experience. I had some teachers who were just really wonderful and I feel like I'm one of the rare people who like loves workshopping. Like I just love people tearing into your work work and I love like, (laughs) yeah, but I feel like it was mostly pretty positive. I don't know. I felt like I learned a lot. Um, Who do you remember who you're, who you had for Asian American literature? I wonder if we had the same teachers. I don't. I know she wore glasses. I know it was a woman. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Same one. Just kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't What did remember, you major actually. in? I majored in management science. So I was okay. um, the economics department. Um, I went to Warren. 
So oh, we Warren, had like okay. the easy writing program. <laughs> like it was, yeah, yeah. it was a writing program. <laughs> I was like one of the only like social science students amongst all the engineers. So my writing was like so much better. Than oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I was in Muir. So uh, what drew you to young adult? Because it, it's sounding to me that that's not really the kind of writing you did in school. Yeah, I feel like I hadn't actually had a lot of exposure to it as a genre. Um, but I think I've always been really drawn to stories about young people. Um, so I think that kind of naturally lends itself to young adult. Um, I think it's just like this really interesting time in your life when like you're interacting on so many different planes with like so many different kind of people, like you're still at home. So you have like, you know, your family to deal with. Um, you have teachers and you have your peers and like, I feel like you have like all of the emotions and sometimes even problems of like an older adult, but none of the agency. And so I feel like it's this kind of weird limbo purgatory time um, that feels just really rich to me. So we mentioned that you studied writing in school. Um, can you walk us through your journey from like being a lit major to becoming a published author? Like what was that? What was that path like for you? Like, did you go directly into writing or was there like, was there a detour here and there? There were some detours. <laughs> um, I, so after I did undergrad, I went to do an MFA. Um, and I think I sort of naively thought that like, you would get the degree and then like you would like be catapulted into like publishing. Um, but publishing obviously super doesn't work like that. Um, so I, um, I stressed out my parents so much. They were like, oh no, what are you doing with your life? Like, how are you going to be like a functioning adult? Um, and you know, I did a lot of like side jobs while I was trying to get published. Um, I was an SAT tutor for a long time. Um, and I wrote, um, I originally actually in college started the manuscript for what was later going to become When We Were Infinite. And I tried for a long time to get that published. Um, I found an agent and I think the feedback at the time from just like the industry, like she really believed in the book. She was like, yeah, let's get this out there. Um, but I think it was just kind of a time when like you couldn't really publish like a quiet story about a group of Asian American friends. Like there just wasn't really appetite in the industry for that. They were kind of like, who's going to read this? Like, what's happening here? Um, so we put that one aside for a little while. I wrote um, what would become my first book, which was Conviction, and that published in 2015. Um, so that was probably, what year was that? Maybe like eight years after I graduated from college. Um, Ten years, I can't remember. Um so I spent a long time sort of writing different things, trying to, you know, revise and revise and find something that would kind of work out. Um, and it took quite a while before it eventually happened. Yeah. I find that really interesting uh, that when we were infinite, that was the first book, first manuscript mm -hmm. you worked on. That took a long time for it, it to get published. It took a long time. <laughs> yeah. It was like the book of my heart. Like I started it. Yeah, like my senior year in college. Um, and it just, I think there's been so much work done in like the publishing sphere by like authors and librarians and activists to sort of open the door for more stories um, that were sort of about communities that really hadn't had a lot of books written by and about them. Um, so now I feel like so much more is possible in publishing and like you can publish a book like that. Whereas truly when I first started, like it just wasn't something people saw on the shelves yeah that's wild because not not that much time has passed but yeah so many things have changed and do you remember like what was like the catalyst I, I think we can trace a lot or it feels like we can trace a lot of like the current surge of Asian American stories to like that year in 2018 when we had a bunch of like Asian American films Christian Asians go mainstream and then all of a sudden like everyone wanted Asian American content like like did you get the feeling that this was the time that you can repitch it or what did they reach out and say, Oh, do you remember that manuscript you had? Can we work on that again? Like how did that come about? Yeah, we re we repitched it. So I'd actually in between my first book and that I did publish a story about, um, and it was like all Asian American characters. It was called Picturesque in the light. And, um, 
So I feel like by then the tides had kind of already started to turn a little bit. Um, and so my agent, like this was probably the third or fourth time she'd sent it out. And she was kind of just like, I think it's time. Like she kind of always believed in that book um, and was kind of just waiting for like publishing to catch up, I guess. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. Like, I feel like there was like, I don't know, it feels like this like a renaissance to me that started happening with like Asian American art. Um, and I feel like it was also really big in film. And then I feel like in books, um, there were a couple like, you know, trailblazers, um, like Melinda Lowe, Cindy Pond, Melissa De La Cruz, like people who have been writing these stories and sort of like carving out that space for others to eventually walk through. Yeah. I mean, we started this podcast in, was it 2016, Rira? Like right yeah, before it was the election. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it seems like every year there's like, you know, it's still a drop in the bucket, like we say, but there are more and yeah. more books that we are like on our radar, which which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when I first started writing, like there was so much pressure to be like the single story. Like if this is like the one book that's published with like Asian characters, like how are you gonna represent everybody? And like I definitely feel like that still happens to like marginalized writers, but I feel like so much less so than before. Like now, you know, someone can go in a bookstore and find like a lot of different books that are like telling a much wider range of experiences, which is <laughs> exciting. I mean, of course, always more work to be done, um, but compared to, you know, even just 10 years ago, like it's it's so different. Yeah. And you know, you were talking about like how publishing wasn't really ready for a quiet book with Asian American characters. Um, I'm just like thinking about like 2017. Like that's when I think Emily XR Pan's uh, yes. The Astonishing mm -hmm. Color mm -hmm. of After and I think Starfish by Akemi Don Bowman yeah, yeah, also yeah. came uh -huh. out. And mm -hmm. it's like the same genre of like, oh, it's like very quiet. You have um, an Asian American girl who is grappling through very... Uh, difficult topics and your books don't shy away from difficult topics like uh suicide addiction and violence uh so like what drew you to writing stories about uh teens going through these traumatic experiences and also like making it a quiet book rather than a book that's like packed with uh drama and action mm -hmm. Um, first of all, I love both of those books so much, Starfish and The Astonishing Color of After. Um, yeah, I think that I am interested in stories where people sort of have to figure out who they are, maybe, and be tested in ways where they didn't kind of see themselves in these circumstances. I think that's also part of why I'm drawn to young adult is it's kind of these moments in life where like something big happens and then it's just like you dealing with the fallout. Um, and I think I'm more drawn to sort of like quiet stories and character driven stories, because to me, I think the drama is more interesting in the ways that after something big happens, like then what, like then how do people respond? Like how do things play out? Who do you find out you are? Like, you know, what are the things you thought you'd never do that like suddenly there you're doing them? Um, and to me, I think that's so interesting. Um, and I think especially for young adults, because a lot of times I think for young people, um, hopefully, you know, this is one of the first times in their life where some kind of tragedy is happening or they're having to deal with something really huge and hard. Um, and I think, again, just the idea that like you are someone who, you know, you have all the same emotions, but you just don't have the resources and agency to deal with things necessarily in the way that you would if you were like 50. Um, and so how does that shape you? Like, how do you figure out who you are like within those constraints? Um, I feel like one thing that's so interesting to me about like high school is like, you have this world where, you know, you could have something really awful happen with somebody. Like maybe you have an abusive partner or something happens, but like, you know, every day you still have to sit next to them in second period chemistry. Like there's kind of no escaping like the contours of your world, um, which I think is just a really interesting thing to explore. And I think something that adults kind of gloss over or don't sort of give the credit for being as hard as it is and can be. Yeah, I think adults uh, tend to underestimate a lot of teens and, and young adults yeah. and how much they can handle. And we can see that right now with, you know, book banning, yes. a lot of a lot of books with heavier topics and um, 
I mean, even joyful books with queer characters, like they're Mm -hmm. considered to be uh, negative experiences by a lot of these parents. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I feel like those those books, they're very important in our libraries because they equipped equip young readers with like, how do you articulate and express the uh, turbulent emotions you're going through in high school? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it is really a terrifying time for, yeah, like young people's freedom to read and find the stories and ideas that resonate with them or the ones that don't. Um, Yeah. Uh, so you wrote this book during the pandemic, I'm guessing. I because, did. Yeah, this uh, was my COVID book. <laughs> this was your COVID book. So tell us, like, what, like, what led you to uh, write a book about an influencer family? Like, how did that come about? Yeah. Um, so I was at home. I have three small children, and we were watching so much screen time um, during COVID, and. Um, some of my kids liked this one show um, with this child who had been sort of on screen um, since a very young age and was now a little bit older, but still making these videos and kind of living their life very much online Um, and was like super wealthy apparently. And like, you could go to like stores and like see their face on like products and stuff. And I kind of like spent a long time thinking about like, what, what is their deal? And like, how, what is that going to be like for them when they're older? Um, You know, what sort of things did the parents think about or um, consider before kind of going into this line of work? And is it going to look different when the child is older and sort of able to more fully grasp what they kind of grew up doing? Um, And I also used to read a lot of like blogs um, back in the blogging heyday. Um, And, you know, I feel like I had these like almost like parasocial relationships with like these families that like I'd never met. They had no idea I existed, but I was like invested in like what happened to their kids or whatever. Um, And as a parent now, I was kind of like, oh, you know, is that yeah, what is that like for the kids when they're older and they kind of didn't have a say in doing this? Um, And I was interested in exploring. I think also because it was COVID and we were home, we were in lockdown and so much interaction was happening just like on Zoom or online. Um, It felt like this kind of like weird liminal space when you were like in society, but like only through screens. And I feel like it's like almost hard to sort of fully be yourself on a screen. Like there's something about it that just like, I know it makes you feel more conscious, I guess, or put up some kind of front or something. Um, So that was very much on my mind and thinking about like, what would it be for like a family to grow up when like, this is just like their whole lives all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think about that a lot too. Sometimes when I'm scrolling Instagram and seeing all these like influencers who like have their kids on everything. And, you know, I have friends who like refuse to post pictures of their children anywhere online, like publicly. And, you know, there's been reporting recently actually about like the children of these influencers kind of suing yeah. their parents for like either emancipation or like to like for privacy. Right. Yeah. It's just interesting that like we're approaching the time now where there's actual fallout for these types of things. And um, it was really interesting to see things I thought about put on the page. Yeah. I mean, it reminded me of Caden eight, uh, the low family because Caden eight was a family uh, with like eight children and also like a mix of seventh heaven, which was also like about a family with like seven kids. So I, was I never just watched like, oh, I that wonder show, if, but like, I was like, I wonder <laughs> if Kelly watched any of those shows because a lot of, uh, a lot of the conflicts and, and character dynamics, I was just like, oh, I think, I, I think I've seen this before in real life. So, oh yeah, I didn't, I never watched seventh heaven. Um, but I think I saw a couple episodes of the John and Kate plus eight. Somebody, I forget who it was. I think one of my friend's moms or something was like into the show. And like sometimes when we would go over, it was on. Um, It's interesting though. um, So like child actors, like there's like, you know, kind of strict sort of regulations about like how much they can work. And like, I think the money has to be put into like a trust for them or there's like, you know, like industry standards about like child labor basically as actors. Um, 
But for child influencers, there's none, like literally none. Um, And I was reading recently, did you guys see the Shiny Happy People documentary that came out? Um, It was about like the Duggar family. Um, This sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty interesting. But one of the things that like came out in that is that um, one of the daughters of the Duggar family, they had like, I don't know, 18 or 20 kids or something. Um, And they were like always on reality shows. And it turned out that she got no money from it. Um, And, you know, she even as an adult, like they filmed her like childbirth. Like they, this was like their whole lives. But like the children didn't get like a cent of that money. Like it all went to their father. And like, um, yeah, just like, it feels like an industry that's like ripe for exploitation. Like anything can happen. It's like, no rules. Yeah. And so in your book, the parents are portrayed as people who are like kind of, you know, they treat the family as like a business. And then the children are kind of, you know, part of that pretty much because they have to be because they're, they're part of the family. Um, I really liked how you kind of balance between like the pure mercenary nature of being an influencer family and like just being a kid. And can you talk a little bit about how you how you approach like your portrayal of Honor, who is your main character, who is the youngest or one of the youngest, she's part of a set of twins um, that's the youngest in the family and how like they're affected by, you know, the situation they're in. Yeah. Um, so my mother, um, she grew up, there was a family business. My grandparents had this like grocery store. And so she and all her siblings grew up very much like a part of the family business. Like they would come after school and like be cashiers or help stock or whatever. Um, and I was always kind of intrigued by this idea that like, all the sort of like conflicts or whatever you would have with your family. Like it's like, also you have to remember that you're like in a public place and you're like working. So you have to like act like everything's fine. Um, And I was like really interested in like kicking that up, like many notches with honor um, and her family. Um, I think that's kind of what is sort of really damaging about influencing is like, well, I think there can be great things about it, but I feel like the idea that you're like turning your kids into these like money makers for you. Um, I feel like as a child, like how can you ever trust that like anything is sacred or private? Like, are your parents like actually saying what they mean? Or are they doing it for the cameras? And like, are they, you know, taking your sort of private stories? And like, I remember as a kid, like being like so mortified or angry. Like if my parents told their friends a story that like, I didn't want them to talk about or whatever. And like, I was just trying to imagine like, what would that be like if like, instead of telling your friend, they were like blasting it out to like their audience of like a million people or whatever. Um, and so with honor, I wanted her to be someone who, you know, she's very much grown up in this lifestyle and she's very loyal. She loves her family. So on the one hand, she doesn't want to rock the boat too much. And she, sort of wants just everyone to be happy and okay. But on the other hand, like she hates it. Like part of her recognizes like, this is not how I want to grow up. This is not how I want my family to be. Yeah. Um, what was it like writing about such a big family and juggling so many characters? Because Honor has a different relationship, different dynamics with each of her siblings, as well as uh, each of her parents. I love writing about big families. Um I come from like a pretty big extended family and um, yeah, I, it was always my dream to have like a billion brothers and sisters. Um, And so I think it's just really fun and interesting to write about like big families, like you said, where there's like kind of all these different like factions, I guess, within the family and sort of the complexities of like this person's relationship to this person and sort of like the alliances that form. Um, I felt like with the low family in particular, like I wanted enough siblings that people had sort of like a range of different experiences with how they'd grown up Um, and kind of a lot of people for honor to consider as she's sort of thinking about like, all right, am I going to keep going along with this? Or like when I can see how it's been really damaging to us, like, am I willing to sort of blow it all up? I do love that the fictional TV show featuring this family is called Lo and Behold. Um, I wanted to ask, did what came first? Was it the family name or the name for the show? <laughs> the like, show. <laughs> um, the family name, actually, I, um, when I was writing, when I was just starting this book, um, the very first thing I had before I had anything else was 
I was thinking to myself, like, okay, if I were like an influencer mom with like five children, like what would I name them? Um, And so I came up with these names that I felt like were like kind of like unique and like sort of trendy in the way that I pictured like an influencer mom, like wanting her kids to be named. Um, So that was like the very beginning of the story before anything else. I had like those five names and the last name. Yeah. I mean, names are very unique. Um. <laughs> yeah, they're very like, they're very influency. Like, oh, you, good, like you said, <laughs> that was the goal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, since we're like talking about the the siblings, I, I did want to like bring up Jameson and Wrangle, who are the eldest of um, the the low siblings, and they're kind of put into a position where they're the parents for the younger siblings. And I just thought it was interesting because that's a position that a lot of eldest siblings go through, especially the eldest daughter in an immigrant family. But the low family is a third, fourth gen. American mm-hmm. family. So I just want to hear your thoughts on like how parentification is an experience that kind of uh, crosses generations and cultures. Yeah. I mean, I think that I guess there are universally just so many ways to like abdicate your parental responsibilities. Um, people have been finding various ways for probably all of human history. Um, and I feel like it can especially happen in big families for one, because, you know, the parents get overwhelmed, but also um, I think the low parents have kind of these really specific ideas of like what they want their family to be. And I feel like a lot of it is based on like branding and success. And I think some of the ideas of like success and financial securities come from their backgrounds, um, just, you know, growing up, Um, not as an immigrant family, but like as Asian American families with like sort of complicated experiences with like money and poverty. Um, And so I think they very much feel like their duty is to make their kids like successful. But I think these are people who took it to like a really intense extreme. And that was kind of the only thing they thought about. Um, And their idea of success, I think, is also maybe kind of questionable and sort of also feeding very much into like their own egos and their own success. Um, and so I think in that sense, they kind of lost sight of like maybe what their actually actual responsibilities were to their kids um, and taking care of them. I do like the fact that the, the eldest were just like, we're going to move away from this house. Like you have Jameson <laughs> in San Diego and you have Wrangle uh, moved away from like moved pretty far away from their family home. And I was just like, that's very understandable like how do you even set boundaries in a in an environment like that and uh, I just want to like hear your thoughts on how like a teenager or like a young adult can create safe boundaries with adults who who control so many facets of their lives like uh, how do you think uh, teens these days who are you know pretty much under the Mm -hmm. roof of their parents uh, every every whim and uh, every expectation can go about creating those safe boundaries? That is such a good question and such a hard question. Um, (laughs) I feel like, you know, you mentioned book banning and like one of the things I was really thinking about as I was writing this book. um, So this was like during COVID and it was a time when sort of the like official governmental narratives were like changing. It was clear there was like a lot of like lying happening and like covering up and everything was really politicized. Um, and so I think I wanted to partly write this book as an exploration, like for young people of like, you know, the adults in your life, like what are the narratives they want you to believe? And like, who is benefiting from that? Like, what are these like power structures in place that like they want you to go along with and you know, what's at stake for them if you don't go along with it? Um, And thinking about, like, the book banning and just, like, you know, the idea that, like, you have to protect kids from, like, the knowledge of, like, you know, queerness or, like, race or whatever. Um, You know, for young people, like, it might be your family telling you this. It might be people you really trust, people who've raised you. But at the same time, like, I feel like you need the freedom to really consider, like, okay, who, what is the story that I'm being told? And, like, is this benefiting me? Like, is this in line with, like, what I believe in what I think, um, you know, for honor, it was like, 
this is her family. This is all she's ever known. But like, is this actually in her best interest? Um, and I feel like that's so hard with teenagers. Back to your question about boundaries. Um, because you really, you know, your parents can exert so much control over you. Um, and I think that there's sort of this like narrative that like, oh, your parents want what's best for you and they're doing what's best for you. But like, um, I think unfortunately that's not always the case for some people. Um, even if that is true, you know, maybe just from various generational traumas or cycles or whatever, like a parent's idea of what's best might still be like extremely damaging to their child. Um, and I do feel like some teens are very much trapped in that. And like, um, there's, it's hard to set boundaries when your parents kind of can have like total control over you. I mean, I feel like it can be helpful to talk to other adults, like a counselor at a school or a church group or a sports team or somewhere where you feel safe. Um, and I also feel like just mentally for yourself, like kind of setting boundaries of like, okay, my parents can tell me this or they can make me do this or whatever, but they can't control how I'm going to feel about it. Like I can, I'm allowed to think something different from them. I'm allowed to think that they're wrong. I'm allowed to like acknowledge to myself that like, this is not okay. Even if maybe there's not much in the moment, I feel like I can do about it. Um, I'm allowed to question and like set my own beliefs and values. Um, and they can't sort of, they don't get to be in charge of that for you. Like, even if you have to hide it from them, if you're in sort of a bad situation, like ultimately like that's for you like they don't they don't get to do that for you yeah I think it like it really helps to have like a strong sense of self because you know mm -hmm. if your parents are controlling your money and you don't have mm -hmm. transportation and you can't yeah. move out like it's hard that's the yeah. only thing you can hold on to like your mm -hmm. emotions your beliefs and having people who you know like really validate your feelings like it mm -hmm. it just helps having one person say oh yeah what you're going through you're not crazy like this yeah. this is gaslighting and I feel like uh that's something that honor and uh Kaden who's another character in your book goes through like they both have like very uh tumultuous relationships with their family and it's kind of like they have to check in with each other and say hey what you're going through like it it sucks but you're doing okay. Like this, it's okay to feel this way. You're not a monster for thinking this way. Um, but as an adult who grew up during a time when internet and social media was pretty much non-existent, I feel like writing teenagers now in young adult literature is very tricky. Because how do you, like, how, how did you step into the mindset of a current day teen who's trying to carve out a sense of self in this era of, you know, marketing and online personas. Yeah. I mean, thank God that <laughs> the internet wasn't around <laughs> too much then. Um, I think that, I mean, I still feel like I, I talk to teens a lot. I see them a lot um, just with like book stuff. Like I get to interact with a lot of teenagers, which I feel like is always great. Um, and I did like, I don't know, I guess I, I watched a lot of TikTok. Like I tried to sort of research kind of what was happening like online and like the world of like teen influencers and stuff and as much as like I feel like the circumstances like that today's teenagers are facing are different and I feel like in a lot of ways like much much harder than sort of was true when like we were growing up um I feel like there are some universals about that time of life that I feel like probably are fairly consistent through generations um like figuring out who you are and like sort of who you are kind of in the face of like society and like everyone else and um, just the ways that you can be really self-conscious um, trying to sort of differentiate like, okay, this is like what my family believes versus like, this is like who I am and what I believe. Um, I feel like a lot of those still kind of hold. Um, I feel like teens today have much different problems and I feel challenges and I feel like they also kind of have more tools. Like I feel like in general, um, they're more sort of like self-aware and empathetic and kind of just like aware of the world and better informed than at least I was at that age. And I feel like most of my peers. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also just like, I feel like teens who went through COVID 
especially have like a very different experience with social media yeah. because that is the only way they had contact yes. with the world. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that um, cohort, I feel like it's going to probably affect them a really long time. Yeah, I remember I saw a TikTok of um, like this one girl who, you know, just graduated from college and was just mm-hmm. like, I didn't get to experience like the the typical like college experience where you like yeah. go into a dorm and you like, you know, have parties, you like go into a sorority. She's like, I lost that part of my youth and I, you know, it it really sucks because there, it, it just feels like I've missed out on something. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And that that's like a new experience that uh, like teens and young adults today are, are going through. And I feel yeah. like millennials and Gen X, it's it's different. We have our own losses, you know, like millennials, like we were promised that we'll have like, you know, jobs after, job. after <laughs> yeah. gra- jobs after <laughs> graduating and have like a house by like when we're 30. But, you know, that was lost. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> it was a nice idea. Yeah, every generation goes through their own uh, yeah. own crap. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a little earlier about how your earlier books were like quiet books about Asian American friends. And I don't know about you, but this book was anything but quiet. There was a lot of very um, dramatic, especially your many confrontation scenes that you have between family. And it reminds me of like just, you know, when you have family together, there's always that tension of like when is everything going to start going haywire and go wrong and um can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach those like the family fight scenes i feel like there were so many people in honors family who have like really big personalities and um they are very confrontational like they're not like at all like avoidant which i feel like is my sort of (laughs) how i am um And it was really fun to, I guess, write them because I feel like in a way they like kind of brought drama with them everywhere they went, um, just who they were. Um, And I feel like most of my protagonists in most of my books, including Honor, I think tend to be more sort of um, maybe not easygoing. I think they're all a little high strung, but they're definitely more kind of like peacemakers or they're a little bit more afraid to sort of speak their mind or kind of upset people. Like they tend to be people pleasers, I guess. Um, and with honors family, I feel like so many of them are like the exact opposite. And that was so fun to write. Um, because I feel like all of them had like very specific things they wanted oftentimes like directly in conflict with what somebody else wanted. And not only were they kind of thinking about like, okay, like how is this going to affect me? It was also kind of like, how is this going to affect my brands? Like what are like, my follower is going to think. Um, and so that was really fun to write. Um, yeah, I really, really had a good time with that yeah. during COVID, just like exercising all my demons, I guess, of <laughs> yeah. internal conflict or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're the mother character, Melissa does the Asian parent thing of like, you don't know what your ancestors gave up for you to be here. And I do love that you, Took use that opportunity to kind of give a little Asian American history lesson too about like the city of Locke and like its importance to the history of Chinese Americans in California. Um, can you talk about why you decided to focus on that community? You know, the the little community of Locke and like the boarding school that her grandmother or the boarding boarding house I think that her grandmother lived in. Yeah, um, the one about Locke. Um, you know, I I've lived in the Bay Area almost all my life, minus my stint in San Diego, mm-hmm. and that was a story that I actually wasn't really familiar with. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in that area and I feel like it just got like totally erased. Um, and so when I learned about it, actually one of my best friend's mom is a journalist um, and she had written this story about um, the descendant of the fishermen. And um, she actually was kind of like blown away by this history. Like she herself hadn't known very much about it. Um And so I thought that was something that was really interesting to explore. I'd love to go back and like really sort of learn more about it. But I think unfortunately, um, a lot of it hasn't been preserved. Um, And the home for girls, the Ming Kwang home, my grandmother and her sisters grew up there. Um, So that's always been something I, you know, grew up hearing about. Um, 
and have read, you know, so many things that I could read about it and, you know, heard my grandma and my great aunt who I was very close to, um, you know, talking about their whole lives. And so that's something that um, I've always really sort of felt strongly about. Um, My great aunt, she passed away this year, um, but she um, kind of always felt like, you know, she'd always sort of charged me, like, you have to keep telling the story, like, you got to tell people about this. You can't let these stories die. Um, So that's something that I, yeah, really want to take seriously and like keep sort of honoring her and that and telling, telling those stories. Yeah, I think it, you know, I think it's really the duty of like second, third generations of like Asian American families to really preserve that history because so much of it has has been erased by like mainstream Western (laughs) history. So yeah, I like I feel like we're seeing more of those stories come out in publishing, especially in the young adult sphere. So that's that's been like really uh, you know, joyful to see from our perspective as a as quote unquote book fluencers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Jameson at one point says, I have this theory that mixed race people are natural influencers. Everyone projects whatever they want onto you. Uh, can you expand more on that topic and just like what your personal thoughts and experience is uh, as someone who is mixed race? Yeah. Um, so I, um, another reason that I really wanted to have a big family and like five siblings and then also two parents who are both mixed race is I feel like it's such a varied experience. Um, and I wanted to sort of explore even within like this one family, people who've all grown up together, they have like the exact same background. Um, it's still something that everyone kind of has like a different relationship with and there's kind of not one sort of mixed race experience. Um, I have one brother and I would say that we both have had like, you know, in some ways, a lot of similarities, but also like at various points in our lives, kind of like different relationships to race or different experiences with it. Um, and I feel like, um, with Jameson's quote about, um, like being like this natural influencer, um, I do feel like, um, there is maybe some similarity in the way that, um, when people sort of can't pinpoint like one thing you are um, or are able to sort of categorize you kind of like easily in their minds, um, they do sort of project a lot onto you. I feel like um, as part of like the greater Asian American experience, like I also feel like a lot of projection happens, especially with Asian American women or like women presenting people. Like I feel like there's kind of that history of like people making assumptions about, oh, you're like so like meek or mild or like whatever. And then there's like, you know, kind of the ways it can get like weirdly like sexualized or um, whatever. And so I wanted to sort of explore that just like a little bit in the book, Um, just that experience of like people kind of writing your, your story for you or your narratives for you um, based on something that they don't necessarily know about. They're just kind of, yeah, projecting. Um, And I feel like that also is something that sort of overlaps with like influencers because people are projecting a lot based on sort of the very specific curated things that you're choosing to share online. Yeah. And also, like, I've noticed this trend with influencers on how they want to look ethnically ambiguous so that, Mm. you know, they cover all of their bases. And I'm like, I wonder, like, what that is. Like, maybe it's a way for them to seem relatable to every part of their audience. But yeah, it's, I feel like that is a different conversation for another day, but that was just like an <laughs> observation that I've noticed. That's super noticed. interesting. I'm going to have to look into that. Like, I feel like I've been like less in touch with influencers, like when I stopped researching for the book, but that's intriguing. I would really write like a whole sociological study on that. Like, I'm just saying that you probably made the right choice because uh, <laughs> me scrolling through Instagram and TikTok and just noticing that a lot of these people have the same faces and That's the same posts. I'm like, hmm. hmm I, wonder I wonder if it's also like happening. filters, like Instagram oh, filters are like yeah, weirdly yeah. like homogenizing everyone or something. Yeah. yeah. It's it's weird. It's it's very weird. I mean, influencing is also like there's such a. I wouldn't say like maybe an art, but also a science behind it. Right. Like there is like like hold hard, like analytical decisions behind like a lot of the content that's being made and you kind of touched on that on your book too and you know the effects that has on the people who influence and like the need to constantly be 
the center of attention, right? Yeah, or like you said, like the like the analytics, but it's about like you, like that. That's kind of messy. Yeah. Yeah. To like, be yeah. authentically <laughs> inauthentic in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what was what was it like? Social media, like it's free because you are the product, and like influencing, yeah. I think is like the the um the next level of that, where you actually like instrumentalize your own life to, or commercialize your own life to like sell to advertisers yeah. and partners, and it's 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 weird. It feels almost dystopic, but like today, right? I mean, yeah. we are living in a dystopia. <laughs> uh, it's true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I find that readers who prefer like tidy endings uh, might be taken aback or surprised by your book's ending because uh, not all of the conflicts in the Low family are resolved. Like they're like forgiveness is still kind of very elusive by the mm-hmm. end of the book. Uh, so without spoiling too much, like can you tell us like what made you settle on that ending? Yeah, um, I think partly I like sort of messy endings just because I feel like they're sort of reflective of life, I guess. Um, I feel like it's rare that you get sort of like a neat bow tie around like a perfect ending. Um, but also I think just kind of in the story, um, some of the things that Honor has learned about her family members, um, and the ways that a few of them have really betrayed her and betrayed each other. Um, I feel like it would be, it would take time like to sort of work through that. And I think everyone would sort of have to be on the same page in terms of like reconciliation and um, honesty going forward. And I think not everyone is there. Um, And so I felt like it would really sort of take more time, like maybe even years down the road before they're able to kind of forgive some of the things that have happened between them. I mean, that's just how families are. I can't tell yeah. you how many times I've had like <laughs> screaming arguments with my mom just for the next day for her to pretend nothing happened. Everything's fine, but you know, still under the surface there. So I think it's pretty, pretty true, true to life. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. But. <laughs> uh, so like, what are you currently working on now? And is there anything you can say about your future projects that, you know, the publishing industry, you know, isn't like hush hush about? <laughs> Yeah, um, I am working right now on my first adult book, which has been kind of exciting. Um, It's based on um, this family who has this like deep history in this Chinese Baptist church. um, And it sort of like very loosely borrows from some of my own family experiences and family history. Um, And I am... Very slow. It's like one of my dreams to write like a picture book. Um, So I'm like very slowly trying to make headway with that. So those are kind of my big things right now. Expanding your horizons then. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, um, Kelly, for joining us on Book Symbol. But it was was wonderful to talk to you. And yeah, congrats on congrats on the book. It's been out for a couple months now. Um, So now it's available. A couple weeks. It came out in June, Marvin. (laughs) Is it? But what is time? <laughs> I thought I felt like it was August already. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, my sense of time, I feel like, is <laughs> so off. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was so great to meet you both and chat. Yeah. And that was Kelly Lloyd Gilbert, the author of Everyone Wants to Know, available now at booksellers everywhere, um, including our Books and Boba Bookshop. Um, as always, if you buy, if you purchase your books from our Books and Boba Bookshop, not only do you support your local bookstores, but also um, the Books and Boba podcast as well. Um, again, a reminder that you can also support the Books and Boba podcast by becoming a member of our Patreon. Um, Patreon members get access to our members-only Discord, uh, where you can join us as we talk about Asian food, boba, and all sorts of things. And we have, we're having a lot of fun with our members up on Discord. So if you want to be a part of that, um, please join our Patreon. And if you do subscribe on the $5 level, you also get a monthly bonus episode from Books and Boba um, called our Boba Chats, um, where we and I talk about um, the non-book-related things going on in our lives. So before we go, um, Rira, what are we reading for book club? for the month of August. We are reading Bitter Medicine by Mia Tsai, and it's a Shansha-inspired contemporary fantasy about a Chinese immortal and a French elf navigating romance, family, loyalty, and workplace demands. 
from what I've heard, this is a book that we have, like, it is very far from the realm of books we've been reading lately. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited to switch genres. Uh, it sounds really interesting. We haven't really read urban paranormal stories in a really long time. So, yeah, and I love yeah. that it's like an East meets West fantasy, which uh, is a mishmash that I love to see. So i um, looking forward to discussing that with you at the end of the month. Um, as always, if you have finished the book and have thoughts, um, please let us know on our Goodreads forums or on our Discord. Um, we always have to include your feedback in our discussion episodes whenever possible. Um, but with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Raman. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, but have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comics creator Jean Lun Yang, and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. Modern Minorities.